Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm Marva Hinton. Back in November, I met virtually with Miriam Chaussee. She was one of the many authors who participated in the Miami Book Fair. You can find video of her virtual appearance at the fair at miamibookfair.com. Miriam's critically acclaimed novel, What Storm, What Thunder, was published in October. It tells the story of the massive earthquake that struck Port-au-Prince, the capital of Haiti, in 2010 through a group of people who were affected by the devastation. The storm left between 250 to 300,000 people dead. The novel is dedicated to them and to Adeline lamore Chaussy, Miriam's mother, who died in 2019. Miriam is also the HBA Chair in the Humanities at Scripps College in Claremont, California, and a fellow of the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation. I hope you enjoy our conversation about what storm, what thunder. Well, it is a just a beautiful novel. I enjoyed it so much. I mean, the, the prose, it was just the sings and the characters are fully alive on the page. But due to the subject matter in this book, there are so many times I had to walk away from it for a little while just to, mm-hmm. to take a breath because it's, it's so much to take in. As a daughter of Haiti, born in Port-au-Prince, was this also hard for you to write? Yeah, in fact, as you were saying that, that's what I was thinking about, that the process was as difficult for me as it might, as the reading process might be for some readers. I, I started the novel in 2013, so three years after the earthquake, after I had spent uh, many years giving talks, you know, on the aftermath and conditions, especially for women and children, um, and and on best practices. And when I started, and I hadn't planned to work on the novel, but then three years later, when I had uh, started to have fewer engagements and was really reflecting on my own grieving process and what the earthquake had really done, you know, to people in Port-au-Prince and in Haiti more largely, I started working on the novel and it took me, you know, five to six years to write. And, it, and often it was because I needed to stop uh, because I didn't write this chronologically um, and I didn't write it in the order that it appears in your hands today. I wrote character by character, and some of the characters have more harrowing experiences of the earthquake than others. And even though some of those voices would come very quickly, sometimes I really needed to stop and reflect or or just really, because you become your characters when you write them, you know, and if if a character is going through a very difficult experience, uh, for example, you know, one of the characters is a young mother who loses her children you can't just rush into the next character. You really have to stop and consider everything that that individual went through and grieve along with them in a certain kind of way. And so, um, but it's also one of the reasons that I wanted the novel to read beautifully uh, in the sense that I wanted readers to stay with the story, but to also give every character a sense of uh, of dignity and of purpose, even if they're, the outcome of their lives was not what they would have wanted or expected as a result of the earthquake. In the novel, there are some characters who are in your situation, uh, Haitians living abroad, Mm -hmm. and you recount how information sort of trickled out after the earthquake happened and how hard it was to be elsewhere and wondering about family back home. Mm -hmm. 
where were you when the earthquake struck and how did you hear about it? Yeah, I was a professor at the University of Cincinnati, so in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, and I was actually on my way to class when I received a text saying, you need to look at the news, you know, something's happening in Haiti. And I didn't actually have time. I was literally walking into a three-hour seminar. And so three hours later, I emerged to a flood of information as to the earthquake having happened in Haiti. Um, I immediately called my parents, who at the time were living in Canada. And then we started the process of trying to locate uh, people on the ground. And that was a two to three week process of trying to determine who had passed, who was surviving, uh, you know, what conditions people were living in in our family. And then for myself, also colleagues, many of whom had, had died, especially in women's groups. And, and then beyond those first couple of weeks, it was about helping uh, acquaintances, friends, colleagues who had uh, connections to Haiti, helping them to track down uh, you know, their acquaintances. And you know, one of the experiences that the char- one of the characters has, Anne, uh, who's an architect who grew- grows up in Haiti, uh, but then uh, works for an NGO, ironically in Rwanda at the time of the earthquake, um, and returns and attempts to help you know, in the situation, I gave her one of the experiences that I had in terms of tracking people down, which at the time, in those early weeks, could only be done through social media because the uh, cell phone uh, towers were down, uh, phone lines were not working, you know, hard phone lines. And I remember a student of mine actually uh, told me, you have to get on Facebook. You know, this is 2010. That was sort of the beginning of Facebook. And it turned out that it was the way to find people. And I had uh, connections at the university there. And I was a friend of mine in Puerto Rico asked me to find a student. And um, I found the student, but the message I received from my colleague was that the student you're looking for is alive, but all of your contacts, which were five different people, all your contacts are dead. Um, And that was a, a real, a moment where I really had to sit in front of my computer and consider what kind of strength I had, you know, to keep doing that kind of work. And it is a contemplation that I gave to the character of Anne as well, because of course, um, I then had to tell my friend and colleague that the five people she assumed were alive actually were dead. And the person she was looking for uh, was still with us. And so it was a very hard several months after the earthquake of doing that kind of work and focusing primarily on survivors uh, but but having to pass on this kind of information. How is it that you made the decision to write this novel? You mentioned you were giving talks um, mm-hmm. well, afterward, and then you. How did this? How did it come to be? You said I'm going to write this novel. Did the character yeah. just start speaking to you, or did you say, as a writer, I want to write about this situation? It was a combination because initially, you know, in 2010, I had uh, another novel come out in the UK uh, called The Loneliness of Angels, which was about the devastation of the 2004 hurricane season in Haiti, uh, which destroyed a, um, was considered the center of Vodou spirituality, a town called Gonaive. And um, so when I was asked to partake in fundraisers, for example, I would give talks from that novel and often uh, people would say, oh, well, then your next novel will have to be on the earthquake, you know. 
And there was a kind of a rush after the earthquake from a, a number of different sectors, intellectual, creative, um, you know, uh, in the aid world, to just sort of descend on Haiti and to produce a lot of material on Haiti, a lot of which was not really based on what Haitians themselves wanted to talk about. And so I didn't want to be part of that fray. And so I really focused on how can I help survivors? How can I help connect people in Haiti to resources outside of Haiti? How can I educate non-Haitians about where to donate? You know, this kind of thing. And uh, three years later, what happened was that both Haitian uh, creative writers started to write about their experience of the earthquake and publish on it. Um, and I had been spending more time in other parts of the Caribbean because of the last novel. I had been writer in residence at uh, UWE in St. Augustine in Trinidad. And I was introduced to a painter, Leroy Clark, who was probably the best known painter of Trinidad. And he was at the time, this would have been in uh, 2012, 2013, working on a cycle called uh, Aitsi Cries. And it was in his response, in a certain sense, to the earthquake. And he was, uh, at the time that I visited, he had 77 paintings completed of different sizes. And he would go on to uh, create about 111, I believe. And he had never at the time been to Haiti. He had never met a Haitian painter. He didn't know much about uh, Haitian uh, aesthetics in terms of how Haitians paint. But I looked at those paintings and I just started weeping in his in his house. And he came to me and asked me, what are the paintings saying? You know, what do they mean? And so we had a, a long conversation about what I saw, what I could read, you know, in the paintings. And uh, and I realized that he was in conversation in on a spiritual level with, you know, the dead, uh, with the emotional tenor of what had happened in Haiti. And as an artist, he was producing what he could, you know, uh, how he was responding in the only way he could. So I went home from that trip and I started reflecting on all the times I gave talks and people would come up to me, not to say you need to write, you know, uh, an earthquake novel, but to tell me their experience of the earthquake, to commiserate about the grieving process, to talk about what we had lost. And it wasn't until that moment in Leroy's studio that I realized that I had been spoken to for many years and that the reason people were speaking to me is because they felt that as a writer, I had a responsibility to bear witness on their behalf. And once I had that realization, in fact, the characters did just flood me. Like I sat down, I, I remember it was a Thursday and all the characters just came. I knew I had a little boy. I knew I had an elderly market woman. I knew I had uh, a young woman who was a sex worker, but I had a fixer. You know, all of them just came like that and said, you know, these are our stories. And then I started trying to refine, you know, to find my way to their voices and to inhabit their lives. Um, so it was a combination of feeling this responsibility from people having shared their stories with me over time and then realizing that as a writer, I had the skill, you know, to bring those stories alive. But I have to be uh, clear and say that I, I did not use any of the stories that I heard over that three-year period, uh, but that they were an inspiration for getting it right and, and, being, and being clear in what it is that people went through. 
On your website, you mentioned that this novel was seven years in the making. What is it about it or what was it about this novel that made it take that long to bring it out? Yeah, well, well, initially, it's, it's as we were talking about at the, at the opening when you were talking about the having to put the novel down sometimes because the material is, is very difficult and what people experience is very difficult. And I went through a similar journey of having to uh, pause because I did have moments where, you know, I, my own mental health was taxed uh, in trying to do justice to the stories and to be very um, accurate, you know, without, without being exploitative. So you're finding a, a balance between the poetic and the truthful um, you know, because on the, on the other hand, you know, at the same time as you want people to find the writing beautiful, you don't want readers to find the experiences themselves beautiful, if that, if that makes sense. And so there were moments where I had to, for my own well-being, put the work aside, and then I would come back and pick it up. And then, of course, there's an editorial process, you know, once the novel was picked up first by uh, HarperCollins in Canada um, and then by Tin House in the United States, it went through editorial processes in both publishing houses, which culminate, culminated in, uh, you know, the product you have now. Um, but so there are negotiations that take place. And in both cases, I lost a character, two characters who are still in the novel, actually, but whose uh, voiced sections were removed because it, it was felt that they weren't uh, pertinent enough to the earthquake experience. So the more backstory than the experience of the earthquake itself. Um, and, and those choices were, were fine by me, but what that meant was that I needed to then rework other parts of the novel so that the reader wouldn't feel that there were gaps in the narrative or storytelling. And then of course, once all that is done, you still have to go through copy editing and uh, typesetting and all that can take over a year. So it's, uh, it's never, even when you think you're done, it's never really done. <laughs> Can you tell us the character who uh, lost his or her section? I'm just curious well, about that. Yeah, sure. There, there were two. Uh, the first, uh, my Canadian editor uh, cut Loco. Loco is a rainwater man who you will see weave through the story. And he supplies water the old-fashioned way. And, and I, he's crucial in a certain sense for me because there was a huge crisis in potable water after the earthquake, which is an ongoing issue in Haiti, but it was really acute after the earthquake. And, and so I wanted there to be a figure of an elderly man who remembered you know, these rural ways and made a living doing that. And he's also the person who uh, very quietly takes care of a young mother that I mentioned earlier, Sarah, because uh, she reminds him of his daughter. Um, and then the, but I have to say, I have to pause and say that Loco has had an afterlife uh, because a, uh, an excerpt from Loco's section, which is not in the novel, appears in an anthology published by Sidica out of Montreal, which I think the uh, translation of the French title is A Haitian Night, and a uh, journal out of Vancouver, British Columbia, is also uh, publishing actually a much longer section of Loco's section. So readers could look, look for those. Uh, I, I think the journal is called um, Boom, Boom Magazine. And, um, 
And then the second character who got cut, and this is by my American editor, uh, was Paul. Paul, who is the younger brother of Tafia and uh, Didier, um, he he ha- he's a 17-year-old young man at the time of the novel, and he's trying to sort out, you know, what does it mean to be a man, you know, in Haiti in this time, and, and which path he will follow. Um, and he had a, a more extensive section. And so what I did when I was told, well, you know, there's a lot here that the reader has to handle, and maybe Paul's ruminations, you know, on what path to follow might be a little too much for the reader. What I did is I took parts of Paul's story that were essential to understanding the dilemma that he finds himself in and that many teenage uh, boys and young men find themselves in, in, in a place like Haiti. I gave those parts of the story to other characters. So for example, his sister, his older sister, Sonia, um, gives you some details, things that she's found out about Paul that he doesn't know that she knows. Um, and I think Tafia also observes his behavior. Um, and she's actually his younger sister, but uh, 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 he is uh, her younger brother in the sense that she has two older brothers and he's the younger of two. And so um, you get those insights without hearing his voice. And I think it, it worked out just as well, but Paul will not have an afterlife. Well, it was interesting when you said that because Paul was the character I, as I was reading, I was expecting him to get to have his say. So I I think that's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, As we've mentioned, I mean, you cover the impact of this storm from several different angles. We see characters who are spared, but lose their children. Uh, We see characters who survive and it changes their lives going forward. We see those who are victimized after the storm through sexual assault in the camps that were set up to house the people who had lost their homes. Right. Uh, which character, as you were writing, did you feel was closest to your heart and just mm. really stayed with you the longest after you finished writing? That's a really hard question to answer um, because I think all of the characters you know, it's like choosing between your children. Like all the characters have meaning for me. And even the most uh, unlikable character, you know, one, uh, my Canadian editor uh, called Richard, who's the, the water uh, magnate, you know, he's a CEO of a, of a water company in, in France. He's Haitian, but he's an expatriate. And he, you know, makes money selling bottled water to poor people, you know, and he doesn't see any conflict in that. He thinks he's, he's made it. And he's actually uh, Malou's son, the market woman's son, and he doesn't acknowledge the fact that he's learned his, uh, his know-how from, from her. Um, so my editor, when she read uh, Richard, said he's deliciously narcissistic, you know. And, uh, and so there's, I had fun writing him, even though I don't particularly like him, you know, as a person. So all of the characters, even the ones that that sometimes, uh, even as a writer or as a reader, you think, ah, who is this person? I like them. But I think that there are two characters for me that um, marked me in a certain kind of way. And and I don't know how to describe that because, as I say, they're all important. They're all special in their own way. But the character that I lived with the longest was Jonas, the little boy, the 11-year-old boy. Um, he's the first character I wrote, and he probably was the last 
to be revised, you know, to make sure all of the the information about what he went through was clear and accurate. Um, and because I think, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about the future of Haitian children. Um, you know, the majority of the population in Haiti is under 25 years of age, <clears throat> excuse me, and there's a very high infant mortality rate. So there's there's always, you know, for those of us who work on Haiti issues, there's always a thinking through how do we ensure that uh, a newborn, you know, gets to school age, and then when they get to school age, that they have a full life. And so Jonas, for me, was representative of those children who, you know, endured a great deal of duress. And, and I don't know if some of your listeners remember, but, you know, just after the earthquake, in the weeks just after the earthquake, when we started getting video out of Haiti, there was a lot of video of, uh, you know, very young people, sometimes children, being operated on without the proper, uh, you know, anesthesia and so on. And you could hear the screams and the mothers screaming. And that stayed with me, you know. And so I, I really wanted to reflect that with one of the characters. And that became Jonas, also because I was uh, supporting uh, a, a group at one point called Goals, which is a, which still exists in the area of Léogan, where I had met the uh, young person who created that um, group, which is to ensure uh, community building and education through soccer, uh, because soccer is very popular in Haiti as it is throughout Latin America. And, you know, I met so many young, saw, you know, young people playing soccer. And I, and I just thought, well, what about that young person who had a limb crushed and who can no longer have that dream? And that's where Jonas came from. And then the other character was Sarah, his mother, who I've mentioned before, uh, because, you know, whole family groups were wiped out and we'll never know who they were, which is one of the reasons why the death toll was inaccurately accounted for, for a long time, because one of the ways that the death toll was arrived at was by interrogating, you know, uh, survivors, you know, who used to live here, uh, who, who's gone. But there wasn't a consideration of the fact that there were many people, that many families for whom there were no survivors. And with Sarah, you have somebody who is a survivor, but who's lost most of her family. And I really wanted to explore what would it mean to have to live with that, with that grief, with that knowledge, for a person who, like Sarah, has an occupation, has a profession, but her whole life really is her family, her children, her husband. And to have that taken away and to kind of enter that space of, of someone who is suspended between, you know, in terms of her uh, psychology, but the rea- her sense of reality uh, is disrupted by these losses while she's still trying to, to hang on. Um, so I think for me, uh, those two characters have, have stayed with me the longest and, and, and also because I know they're a reflection of, of reality. You know, those who will never hear from again, like Jonas, and those who have to go on living with the losses, never really fully reconciling the losses with their with their present day realities. It's interesting to me that you mentioned uh, Richard, the man who was born in Haiti, uh, but has turned his back on the country and on his mother and the mother of his child and his child there in Haiti. 
although he provides financially for them, he's not right. present in any other way. Right. Um, because I just felt like he, you're not supposed to like him. You know, I did not like him, but I just thought he was really one of the most interesting characters because we see he becomes successful. He's living in Paris with his wife and children there. Uh, as you mentioned, he works in the bottled water industry and a large part of his job, excuse me, a large part of his job is exploiting developing countries for their natural resources. That's right. And he finds himself back in Haiti when the storm strikes. So we get to see his experience of the earthquake. Uh, and I was just wondering, how did Richard come to you as you were developing the other characters? Because, you know, he's not really very sympathetic at all, but mm-hmm. I thought he was just so interesting the way he uh, tried to rationalize his behavior. Yeah. Well, you know, part of, of my own experiences as a, you know, Haitian born person is that I had a lot of conversations with family members and colleagues and, you know, the the variety of opinions that there were bef- even before the earthquake, you know, before and after in terms of what should the future of Haiti look like really uh, is quite varied, you know, and, and part of the work of the novel was to try to explore that diversity of opinion. You know, there are, you know, so when uh, Richard is um, at the at the pool, you know, he's at the, the luxurious hotel and he's overhearing, you know, elites talking about what should be done about the poor and, you know, conditions in Haiti. This is a conversation I've heard many times myself, you know. And so I wanted to have a character like Richard who is overhearing some of these things, but also thinks in a very similar way, but doesn't perceive the way that he thinks as being in any way connected with with the elites in that sense. Um, And so I wanted to reflect the fact that there are many uh, parts of the society that coexist in, um, in spaces within Haiti and also beyond it, and that don't have a uniform idea of what the future of Haiti might be. And I think Richard is, is an ironic kind of character because he knows both sides. He was born in a lower strata, right? He was born to a market woman. He knows what poverty is. He even talks about the fact that the reason he's so good at his job at detecting you know, the best water you know, when he's brought samples is because he knows what foul water smells like, you know, from when as a child they would have to boil water to try to get, you know, more potable water. So I think he, Richard was, was born out of a, a kind of um, reflection of the ways in which um, sometimes the most privileged are blind to the ways in which they participate in um, the, the kinds of shortcomings that they then bemoan, you know, over rum and coke. Uh, in luxury. And so that's, that's where he came from. As I mentioned earlier, you tackled the issue of sexual assault that a lot of occupants of the camps faced and were vulnerable to. I mean, everyone in the seemingly everyone living in those camps really was vulnerable uh, to so many different things, but women and children, you know, were particularly at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, these assaults were also seemingly ignored by so many people, uh, people living in the camps, you know, 
there seemed to be no one really in charge. Uh, why was it important for you to show this part of the aftermath of the storm? Yeah, as someone who specializes in Haitian women's literature and women's issues, you know, that was something that I talked a lot about in the, the months and, and years after the earthquake. And there were actually a number of uh, women's groups that mobilized to, um, you know, to not only to, to assist uh, victims of such violence, but to make sure that it was recorded. Um, so I was really acutely aware. Some of these organizations were international women's groups, uh, but there was a group within the country which, which no longer exists. I'm going to forget uh, the name right now, but it but it, it, it's dissembled since. Um, but there was a group of women survivors. They were actually survivors of political sexual violence, you know, politicized sexual violence from uh, a decade or so before the earthquake, but they had organized uh, in terms of helping survivors, you know, heal from from what had have happened to them. And when we started hearing this information from the camps, they mobilized to, uh, you know, get information from women who were willing to come forward, even if they knew that their cases would not go uh, to a court of law so that there would be some evidence of what had happened. And then to get these women psychological help, you know, therapy um, and other kinds of assistance. Um, and, you know, one of the things that you see in, in another of the characters, uh, one of the male characters chapters, Olivier, is something that also did happen is that because these camps were just sprung up, you know, they mushroomed because people could not go back to their own dwellings. And so people had to create uh, encampments wherever there was an open space, which was one of the reasons that many of the camps had no clear organization at the beginning and then became organized, usually through NGOs, um, as time went on that took over you know, different camps. And there were negotiations also with local people as to how those camps were run. But once it was clear that the insecurity was rife, and this is also due to UN forces not who, who were there, Minusta was in the country, not providing security, and we were to find out later that UN soldiers were also part of the problem, you know, also preyed upon children and, and women in the camps. Um, this is actually a, a problem that goes back to 2007. It was discovered later. Um, and so they couldn't count on police forces, the UN, MINUSTA, for security. And uh, young men then started providing security for their own camps once they realized, you know, how, how bad the problem was. And so this is why in Olivier's chapter, and this is Sarah's husband, you see a man who takes it upon himself to join a group of men who patrol uh, the, you know, who patrol their own camps in order to secure the camps for for uh, those more vulnerable. Um, and so, it was really important for me to 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 reflect on both situations. So, in Tafia's story, uh, the fifteen year old, you see her being preyed upon by a, a former schoolmate in the camp who seeks her out in the camp and utilizes the lack of security um, in order, you know, to, to violate her. And then you see a contrast with Olivier, who is a, who doesn't want to be aware of the violence, but then realizes that, um, having left his wife in another camp, that he has to do something to protect the women where he is. And so, um, I think, you know, women everywhere suffer in silence when it comes to 
violations of this kind. And so it was, and since we know that this happened, and I'm sure it happens in IDP camps and refugee camps all over the world, I felt that it was important to voice uh, this reality. And, and also, I think another way to think it through, and I don't know, you can tell me if this was your impression as a reader, is that I, I felt that it was important to show someone surviving this violence, um, that Tafia is 15, but when readers leave her in this novel, they'll realize she's only 16 and she will have had a child, but she knows so much more than many of the characters, than even the older brother uh, in Didier in Boston, who she's waiting to have reappear. And my sense of her, and I hope readers get this sense of her, is that she'll be the one teaching her older siblings what it was like to live in the camps and to go through this. And she'll be, I think as many young women who, who have survived this, they'll be a light for the future, you know, uh, in terms of navigating these traumas and preventing future traumas of this kind. Well, I feel like there's definitely a sense of, the novel ends with a sense of hope uh, for the future. And we see characters um, having some agency and trying to uh, bring about positive change in their lives and in, in the lives of their uh, countrymen and women. Uh, the character Olivier, you mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. he's the character we see who really kind of his section just runs down the many ways Haiti has been done wrong, you know, by, mm-hmm. by the French, uh, by the United States. Um you talk in the novel about all the aid that poured into Haiti after the earthquake, excuse me, all the aid that poured into Haiti after the earthquake in 2010. Uh, and in many cases, just by you know, regular people who were saw what was happening on TV and felt compelled to give some money, but that money didn't really reach the people who right. needed it most. Mm-hmm. What do you hope readers will take away from the novel about the political issues Mm-hmm. that have shaped Haiti and the way Haiti has been treated on the world stage. Yeah. You know, I really like Olivier's anger. I mean, I, and, and I maybe reflected my own and others' anger through Olivier, because I think one of the things that happens in the conversation around Haiti is that we use the word uh, resilience a lot. You know, Haitians are resilient. And the problem with the term resilience is that it presumes that a group of people will always bounce back, you know, that they have it in them to always come back from nothing. And it also prevents us from talking about where that resilience was created from. You know, why do people need to be resilient? And so in Olivier, what we have is a conversation. And so he's he's actually thinking, of, he's a, a profession, an accountant, and he's thinking about the numbers as a way to distract himself from the suffering that he's going through. But at the same time, he's trying to think through how could have this, have this been prevented? Like how could this disaster have been made less than it was? Because we know that it's not the fact that the earthquake was a 7.0 earthquake that made it as horrible as it was. We know that it was as horrible as it was because of the frail infrastructures, building infrastructures, economic infrastructures, and so on, 
that made the death toll so high and the impossibility, in fact, of bouncing back, of having resilience very quickly, also nearly impossible. So I hope that when people read Olivier in the entire novel, what they get is a sense of perhaps maybe a, a reflect, they might reflect on how they themselves are maybe part of the story, how they can react in a different way. Because we had a, another earthquake in August, August 14th. It was actually larger in scale. It was 7.3 on the Richter scale. It, it did not hit Port-au-Prince, and so the death toll was much lower because it hit an area that was less densely populated. But still 2,200 or so people died, which is a very high number for earthquake uh, death tolls in the modern you know, era. And uh, still over a million people are, uh, you know, have, are suffering now from shelter insecurity and food insecurity and are not having resources uh, finding their way to them. And I've, since August, been hearing a lot of people say, well, why should we donate, right? Because the money disappeared and what did they do with this money? And sometimes people will even say, people who actually do know the history of Haiti will say, well, it's because of the corruption of the government. And when you look at the facts, less than 1% of the money that was collected since 2010 to, I would say, 2020, went directly to the Haitian government. Less than 1%. $13 billion went into Haiti. And I have to say, came right out. In the sense that most of the money that went in, went in to support NGOs that did not leave structures in place, that did not train people on the ground, who brought in materials from the outside rather than source it from the inside, or flooded, you know, when it came to food staples, flooded the marketplace with, uh, for example, rice from the United States, which is an, has been an ongoing problem for decades, because the rice that's imported uh, is imported at very low tariffs, and the rice that's produced in Haiti costs more to produce, And so people can't feed themselves from their own local rice because the foreign rice, which is actually not as nutritious, I have to say, uh, is, is, is less expensive. And so there are ways on the outside where we can do our due diligence when we donate money. We know that the Red Cross gathered millions of dollars after the earthquake from uh, American households. But they were quick to say that the money that was gathered uh, went out to their global, you know, affairs, uh, you know, in different parts of the world that didn't go to Haiti. And we know that there's been reports of, you know, when they claimed they were going to build uh, over six, you know, I think in the six figures of, of homes, that they only built six or seven dwellings. Um, so the money went nowhere. So on our side, we have to say to ourselves, when we want to give money to Haiti, where should it go? It should go to grassroots organizations. It should go to organizations in the healthcare, arts, education sectors that have longstanding programs in Haiti, like Partners in Health, for example, uh, Zami La Santé. There are lots of places that know what to do with the resources that they are given and know what the local population uh, wants. So, so that's one part of it. And I think, you know, Olivier Rance in his, in his section but he's also giving voice to a very long history of intervention and interference that has not made things better for Haitians on the ground. And we have to reflect on that. 
you know, why is it that the plan for development in Haiti, the UN plan for development in Haiti in 2009 was the same in 2009 than it was in 2011 and is the same today, which is factory work. You know, I think, and, and, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with being, you know, blue collar factory worker, but if it's the only option that's presented to you and the working conditions are such that you have no rights, you know, for taking bathroom breaks, for uh, having a living wage, um, that you cannot have make enough money to send your children to school, that you have no other prospects, we have to ask ourselves, why is that the plan for an entire population? There must be other plans. Uh, and Haiti used to have, you know, uh, a very good educational system, you know, across the board for, for individuals. It no longer has that. It's privately funded. You know, you're lucky if you get into a better school or you have to go to a missionary school, you know, a school run by mission. So um, I've, I'm hoping that when people read the novel, they, they think about all those things and they reflect on how they can contribute to uh, Haitian possibility, you know, for Haitians to thrive in the future in a way that won't undermine what Haitians might want to create for themselves, whether it's in the agricultural sector or whether it's in their choice of professions. I remember seeing a list on your website where you uh, provide some resources for people who want to donate uh, to organizations that are doing good work, that are making sure the people on the ground are getting this money. Tell listeners how they can reach your website and what they can find there in terms of uh, organizations that are doing good work. Yes. Um, so they can go to my website, which is www. My first and last name is Miriam Chancy or Miriam Chancy.com. <laughs> um, and there I have a page on Haiti Relief Funds, which I've maintained since 2010, late 2010 to uh, 2020 in terms of Port au Prince. And um, whenever I came across an organization that was doing great work or that was recommended to me, I did my due diligence and I researched them if I did not know them directly. Um, and what I list there are different kinds of organizations because I know that when we you know, donate our hard-earned dollars to different organizations, we have different things that we care about. So I try to provide a range from very large NGOs. Some people are more comfortable with names that they know. So uh, so organizations like Doctors Without Borders that has very low overhead and really do great work medically on the ground or Partners in Health, which I mentioned earlier, which works uh, on the local level and trains Haitians as nurses and physicians. Um, to sort of mid-size NGOs, which are locally run uh, like Focal in Port-au-Prince, um, to really grassroots small organizations like uh, Matenoa, Art Matenoa, which is a group, a collective of women in the island off the coast of Haiti, which makes beautiful arts and crafts. I have many of their scars, which are hand-painted and uh, with designs that come from Haitian flora and, um, well, vodou scenes or biblical scenes that have been reinterpreted from Haitian points of view. And so there's really something for everyone. You know, if you're a teacher and you want to donate to a teacher's group, I've, I've given a wide gamut of of uh, NGOs. And then after the, the earthquake in 2021, you know, this summer, I reached out to some of the executive directors of NGOs that I have worked with for uh, longer than 2010, you know, for a couple of decades. 
and asked them because the concern in August was that all of the money that would be uh, collected would go to Port-au-Prince, which was not the epicenter of a recent earthquake. So I asked them, where do you think people should donate? And they provided me very graciously with a long list of of, um, NGOs, some of which are run by Haitian Americans, some of which are run by Haitians in Haiti or in partnership uh, with uh, with Americans uh, who are not Haitian, but who, uh, you know, staff their organizations with Haitians. And, and I also, again, did my due diligence. And one of the things that I can tell your listeners is that when they go to those websites, many of the websites now will provide you not only with where the money goes after they've collected the money, but what the plan is before it's collected. So you can see a transparency right there. If you don't see that transparency, I would say, you know, go to another website, look for something else. But most of the NGOs working out of Haiti now are really comfortable with providing you with that transparency because they know uh, that the money anyone provides is is hard earned, and they also know that it can do a lot of good. It can go very you know very far. If somebody only has a dollar or two to give, it is as important as as a person who can give a couple of hundred dollars because a dollar in Haiti can do a lot. Miriam, I just would like to ask you because I know you are a longtime professor. Mm-hmm. Um, through your work as an academic, you've studied Haitian women writers extensively. Tell us who you think we are, who you think is just not getting the shine that uh, she deserves. Who should we be reading uh, from Haiti that you feel like enough people are not reading right now? Oh, that's a great question. Um Mm, so now, now I'm, make, I'm thinking, oh, do you want classic Haitian women writer or do you want uh, uh, a new Haitian writer? I'll do, a, I'll do a combination and then maybe. So I wrote a book in, uh, that was published in 1997 called Framing Silence, Revolutionary Novels by Haitian Women. And it's the first book, I think it's still the only book, hopefully somebody uh, will, will write a sequel, won't be me, but hopefully somebody will write a sequel. And it covers uh, the tradition of Haitian women's literature, mostly in fiction, from the 20s, which was the period of the U.S. occupation, which is when Haitian women started writing novels, to the period of of 1994, when the first books in English started appearing, of course, by Edwige Danzica and also Anne-Christine Dadesky, who published a book in 1994 as well. Of the the classics, but they're they're written in French, although I did some translations in uh, the book, I would say uh, Marie Chauvet, uh, her last name is C-H-A-U-V-E-T. She wrote a book that has been translated called Amour, Colère, Folie, uh, Love, Anger, Madness. There are a couple of translations floating around of her work. One other uh, writer of that period is Annie Desrois, D-E-S-R-O-Y. She has a book called um, Le Joug, The Yoke, and it's about the occupation I don't know that it has been translated. It's actually a work that I had hoped to translate and, and didn't get around to, but maybe it will be a, a future project. Um, that book I know is floating around in the Florida public library system. So, uh, you know, I almost snatched it years ago, but I was like, well, you know, it should be circulating. Um, but of the modern or contemporary writers, um, I think some of your listeners would probably know the name of Yannick Lainz, L-A-H-E-N-S. She won uh, the Prix Femina in uh, France a few years ago and has a book that was translated called Moonbath. 
I think that was the one that won the award um, and, and may have some others translated that people can find. But I think the person that I'm reading more of now that I think most people will not have heard about uh, unless they're reading in French is Émilie Prophet. And I love her name. I, I haven't asked her if that's her pen name or her actual name uh, because her last name is P-R-O-P-H-E-T-E. So it's literally Prophet, you know. Um, she's a beautiful writer. Um, she has a book called Impasse Dignité, uh, which basically means um, dignity way. But in French, impasse also means um, a dead end. So it's about a, a community of people on this, on this street and their intertwined lives. Um, and it, it does bear a little bit on the earthquake. I don't want to give it away for anybody who, who reads it. Um, but it is so beautiful. It was the first novel that I read by her. And then I've since gone on to read a number of others. And she does have a book coming out in English translation in January of 2022 called Blue. It has a beautiful cover. I don't know who, who's publishing it, but I'm sure people can find that. If they look for Emilie Prophet uh, with an E at the end of Prophet um, and Blue, I think this is somebody that will be widely translated uh, hopefully sooner rather than, than later, and that more, more people should be reading coming out of Haiti. That was Miriam Chaussy discussing her novel, What Storm, What Thunder. You can find out how to win a free copy of it on our website, readmorepodcast.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also support Miriam and the show through buying the book on our site, Please follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again next time for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton, reminding you to read more.